Um, I'm going to pray for us, and then, then I'll start. Lord Jesus, thank you that we could praise your name now, and thank you that you are close. Thank you that you are knowable. Thank you that you take us as we are, and you don't leave us like that, but you take us exactly like that, and you love us. Thank you for what you have done for us and in us. Please work through me tonight. Please bless us, and please make your name great. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So um, the theme for tonight is playing hide-and-seek with God. Uh, Johan asked me to preach tonight, uh, and he didn't really give me a theme. He, he spoke about some experiences he had about people wanting to experience God more and struggling to know how to make that happen and what that means. And this set me off thinking. Now, I am going to put quite a few texts up on that screen. So I see some people have already shifted this way. That was a good move. If anybody else wants to do that, you're welcome. Uh, I am going to read the texts as well. So I've got a few quotes, and I've got a few Bible texts that I'm going to read as well. You are welcome to move a bit closer if you want to actually read them yourself. Some people prefer just to listen. Others like to read them as well. Um, I'm just warning you in advance that there will be quite a bit for us to look at. Now, I chose this theme, playing hide-and-seek with God, on purpose. Um, I had to think about it for a bit. But my own view is that it actually encapsulates what we're busy with quite well. Now, obviously the word play, playing or play, is a, is a bit pejorative, right? So I'm basically saying we're playing a game. But I do think part of what we're going to have to think about tonight, all of us, will be how serious we are when it comes to knowing and experiencing God. And I don't think that's as obvious as, as one thinks. So I'm going to invite us all to reflect tonight quite a bit about how we interact with this God. Um, and then, of course, hide and seek has two elements to it. Somebody's hiding and somebody's seeking, and then the other one takes the turn to hide and seek. I don't know when last you played this game, but um, that's the way it works, just in case you forgot. And I think it's a beautiful metaphor, actually, for how we interact with God and how we experience Him often. And therefore, I want to dig into that a little bit further. Um, so let's get down to the meat of things. I think it's important to start off by saying that we were not originally made to hide. This is not our natural state or our intended state. When God created us, he did not create us to hide. He actually created us to not have to hide at all. We read in Genesis 1 verse 25. I'm just going to shift this a little bit this way. <clears throat> So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And then Genesis 2 verse 25, Now the man and his wife were both naked, but they felt no shame. We also see them in the garden with God, very comfortable. They were able to be naked with an, uh, another human being, and they were able to be naked and comfortable in front of God. Originally, as human beings, we were not made to hide. We were made to be open, we were made to be seen, and we were made to be comfortable with that. But then, something happens in Genesis 3, verse 7. <clears throat> Humanity rebel against God. And we read in Genesis 3, verse 7, At that moment their eyes were opened, and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. When the cool of the evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. So they hid from the Lord God amongst the trees. And then the Lord God called the man... <clears throat> where are you? Where are you? Now, a few very important things to notice here. The first one is, after they had sinned against God, the first thing they wanted to do is hide from each other. They were not comfortable to be open with each other anymore, and they sewed fig leaves together to try and cover up their bodies. <clears throat> when they then hear God walking in the garden, what they do is actually quite ridiculous, if you think about it, Right? So they decide to go and hide from God behind some trees. Now, if you think about who God is, and you think you're going to hide behind some trees from him, clearly they weren't comfortable to be seen by God anymore. And they did their very best to hide from each other and from him. But I want you to notice something else. Who is the first one who reaches out here? So after, after humanity had messed up, according to Genesis, instead of going to God and saying, we made a mistake, we've messed up, we've really done it wrong they are hiding and who comes looking for them the one who comes looking for them is actually God 
And I know in this church, Herman preached a beautiful sermon about the hiddenness of God. There is a lot to be said about that. But right here in the beginning, we don't find God being hidden. We find him being right there. And when things go wrong, like a good parent, he doesn't run away. He comes closer. He comes to see what has happened. He comes to find them. And it's also important to notice here, and you're going to notice it in quite a few more texts that I'm going to show you tonight. It's important to remember that when God asks a question, he's never looking for information. Because he is all-knowing, right? So when there is a question being asked here, this question is almost certainly meant to make the human think about something. It's not for God's sake. He's asking this question as a mirror. So <laughs> when the Lord God called to man, he says, where are you? And I think for all of us tonight, the question and the sermon should start right there. Only you know where you are. Only you know what has happened this week, what has happened in your life over the past months. You know where you are. And I think it's important to know that God wants to ask us all, where are we? When we start looking for him and having, looking to have experiences with him. Because this message continues, and I'm going to get to the hiddenness of God in a moment. I'm only going to give one slide to that, because that's not the purpose of tonight's talk. Actually, tonight's sermon is about the fact that, yes, there is a hidden element to God, but there is also so much in the Bible telling us that God wants to be known, that He is the one who reaches out. He is the one who wants to be found. And for those who earnestly look for Him, He is available to be found. 2 Chronicles 15 verse 2b says, The Lord is with you when you, when, when you are with Him. If you seek Him, He will be found by you. But if you forsake Him, He will forsake you. If you seek him, he will be found by you. Jeremiah 29 verse 13 in English Standard Version. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Proverbs 8 verse 17 English Standard Version. I love those who love me and those who seek me diligently find me. And here I want to point something out. So Jeremiah tells us we have to look for God with all our heart and we will find him. Right? And Proverbs says we should look for him diligently. These are two elements of being human. The one is with all of our commitment, who we are, really want to know him. And the second one is to be diligent. And you don't have to be diligent when you eat ice cream, right? Diligence comes in when you have to do something that is sometimes quite difficult. And therefore, we are called by the Bible. God says, I will be found, but I want you to look for me with all your heart, and I want you to look diligently. And then we find in the New Testament, there are many more verses I could have used here, but then we find in the New Testament God becoming incarnate. God, who reached out in Genesis and asked man, where are you, now comes in the form of his son, Jesus Christ, and becomes one of us and lives amongst us. That's how close he comes. And when Jesus approaches his death in John, he tells his disciples, you should be glad that I'm leaving. Can you imagine? I don't know about you, but I've always wondered how, what it would have been like to meet Jesus as a human being here on earth. It, would have, it must have been amazing. But Jesus says to his disciples in John, it is better for you that I leave because the Holy Spirit will come and it will indwell you. It will come and live inside of you. So we find the God who becomes incarnate, who comes to walk, amongst us and we find the God who sends his Holy Spirit to come and live within us in addition to that we find two of Jesus's um, um, parables that he tells the first one is of the Good Shepherd the Good Shepherd leaves 99 sheep behind and goes to look for the one that was lost and when he finds that sheep he lifts him up puts him over his shoulders and brings him back to the fold the, the when Jesus wants to teach us who God is, he teaches us that. And in the prodigal son, we find the father letting the son go. He doesn't go after him and pick him up and put him over his shoulders and bring him back. No. He leaves him to go. But when he comes back, he's sitting on the stoop. The word stoop isn't in the Bible. Maybe in the original language it says stoop. I don't know. <laughs> but, the, but, the, but the father is sitting there and he can see his son far off. He knows that walk. And he runs towards him to welcome him back, to bring him in, to give him blessings. So the Bible teaches that God is findable. He wants to be found. He wants to be known. And yet, sometimes feel, God feels so far away for all of us. I don't think anybody in this room can say that you haven't experienced that yet. I don't think it would be true. If he is there at all. 
Many of us don't experience God in the ways we think we should, if we experience him at all. And this can be summed up in what's called the law of undulation. Do you know what undulation means? It means when things go like that, right? So the ground is undulating when it does that. And I think spiritually, the law of undulation tells us that all of us, spiritually, will go through times of higher and lower experiences. I think it is universal. I don't think there's anybody who gets away from the law of undulation. It actually goes as far as the, what, what in Christian circles are called the dark night of the soul, where you feel abandoned by God. Now we know that God abandons no one today because Jesus was abandoned on the cross. And therefore, none of us will ever be abandoned. But that doesn't mean it doesn't feel like he abandons us sometimes. As a matter of fact, somebody like Mother Teresa, for the last 20 years of her ministry, never felt that God was close to her. It's one of the big secrets that came out. Many people were shocked to find that after her death, many of her diaries came out where she spoke about not actually feeling that God was close. Don't think that she lost her faith. She fought through this dark night of the soul. And I think it's important to accept that as Christians, that that can be part of our experience. This undulation and possibly even parts that are the dark night of the soul. But it's important to remember that there are two playing this game, if we, if we can call it a game of hide and seek. And we are seeking God, and we have certain expectations when we do that. And I think we do have to ask ourselves how serious we are when we try and find him. And I'll come back to that in a moment. And yes, I give the hiddenness of God. I have, there is no doubt about that. God is not in our faces. He is not coercing us. He's not trying to force us to believe in him and to commit to him. Absolutely not. There is a hidden element to who God is. And I'll come back to that in a minute because I think there are interesting reasons, many reasons, but I want to give some interesting ones that you might have thought about but might not. Although that is true, I think we have to accept tonight, you have to accept, I have to accept that we still love our fig leaves. We do. The psychologists tell us that when we look in the mirror, all of us turn our faces to look in a certain way before we actually look at the mirror because we like a specific look, right? Actually, psychologically speaking, we, there are things we hide from ourselves, okay? So we don't actually, we're not even willing to take the fig leaves away for ourselves. We hide things from other people, often. And we hide things from God. So when we speak of the hiddenness of God, I think we must add to that the hiddenness of us, our own hiddenness, the fact that we tend to want to hide behind fig leaves. And I think it's interesting to look for which fig leaves we prefer. And we often ask God then for a sign. I don't know if you watched Bruce Almighty. It's not a movie that everybody will like equally. I remember when I heard of this movie coming out, somebody was standing in front of the church and they said, we must pray against this movie. And when I went to read up on it, I realized, no, we should, well, you're welcome to pray against it. But actually it was made by a Christian, right? A person who, who comes from a Christian worldview. And if you go and watch the movie, Bruce Almighty, you'll find many aspects of the Christian worldview built into it. And in this specific scene, Bruce... Um, is driving his car and he's talking to God and he's looking for a sign and he, and, he, and he gets really quite animated and upset and he says show me a sign God please show me a sign and the next moment a big sign next to the road lights up warning or something I can't remember what it said he just drives straight past and he says come on God I'm looking for a sign won't you give me a sign and a whole truck full of signs come right past his window he doesn't see anything right he misses the whole thing because he's looking for a sign in the way that he thinks God should be talking to him. And part of what I want to challenge tonight is the fact that if God is truly a person, we cannot tell him how he must interact with us. We must open ourselves up to meet a person. And that could possibly surprise us. Romans 1 tells us that God is a little bit like your little finger. So, do you, uh, I hope you all still have your little fingers. You know, not everybody does. But when I say you've got a little finger, you become aware of it. You had it before you came in, but you didn't really realize it, right? Romans 1 tells us that your, the knowledge of God for human, humanity is a little bit about like the knowledge of your little finger. And what I mean by that is nobody will ever be able to say to God, I didn't know, ever. Because when I say you've got a little finger, you, you immediately, well, if you like me, you immediately, oh, yes, yes, there it is. Hi, hi, okay? <clears throat> and, you, and you start using your little finger. 
Now let's listen to what Romans 1 says. It says, people who suppress the truth in their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. Romans 1 basically says that nature is part of God's revelation of, of his existence, of that he is there. I don't think you can easily get to know God personally through nature. But Romans 1 implies that nobody will ever be able to say that they did not know that God existed. I think that is, that is what Romans 1 is teaching. And then in verse 21, he continues by saying our hearts were darkened and we suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. That's what it goes on to say. Now, there are three main areas of revelation from God from a Christian perspective. The first is in nature. We can see that he's there in nature. The second is in his word, the Bible. And the third is in his son. Those are the three main areas of revelation of God. God comes to introduce himself, to show himself in those three areas mainly from a Christian perspective. But I want to argue tonight that we are probably living in the time that has, has made it the most difficult for a human being to actually experience God in the history of humanity. I might be wrong, but, but I really, as I was thinking about this, as I was was, was asking myself, what is it that keeps us from God? What, what is it that keeps us from experiencing Him? I really think the time in which we live now is exceptionally difficult for us to truly experience God. And let me make the argument and see how it sits with you. You might disagree. And the good thing about Dialog is at the end you can argue back. Unless I talk long enough, that if I see you guys are getting upset, I'm just going to keep on talking. And then when you start falling over, then I'll know I've won, right? So I'll do that. So let me make my case. The first part of the case goes back to Romans 1. God is seen, his existence is seen in nature, and yet we all live in cities and in towns and in buildings. How much of nature do we still have? Many of us have almost no contact with nature, with an awesome sunset, with a beautiful sunrise, with the dew that shines in the morning light. The stars at night, when we look up, all we see are the street lights, right? When we read about um, 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 Abram, Abram looked up and he saw the stars in the desert, and it hit him for a six. I think it's difficult to know about God's existence because we live in cities, and we are not close to nature. Secondly, we are never quiet, or if we are quiet, we're not quiet for long, and we prefer to avoid quiet places. As a matter of fact... We try and avoid them as much as possible. Most people these days never are never quiet or in a quiet spot. And as we will see a little bit later, I think one of the things God wants us to do if we want to experience him is to be quiet. One of the things that he wants is for us to stop. One of the things he wants from us is to pull away from all the noise. And I think today it's become more difficult than ever before to do that effectively. Then we don't read much any longer. I don't know if I should ask tonight who of you have read uh, the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation, the whole thing. Let me rather not ask you put up your hand, right? But my experience in the church is that most people haven't read the whole Bible even once. None, zero, null. I don't know how it's going with your Bible study at the moment when you read the Bible. And I think there is place to do it like you sometimes eat your vegetables, you know. You, you have to do it because it's healthy and you just get it in. You don't really taste much. You can't remember what you ate, but it's in. It's good, yes. I think there's place for that. But when last did you ruminate? When last did you stop and drink in the Word of God? When last did you stop and really ask the Lord to speak to you through it? Spend time on a text. And when I say time, I don't mean two minutes. I don't mean five. I would say a half an hour is a minimum for you to really ask the Lord what he, what he is saying, to interrogate that text, to, to possibly take something like the Veritas course and work through that text to, to find the structure and the meaning to see what the Lord says. But we don't read, and yet we are people of the book. As Christians, we will always be the people of the book. I don't think that will ever change. Good thinking is not revered or even respected anymore. We live in a society, in a world, where the one who shouts the loudest is the one who gets what they want. It's not about arguments. As a matter of fact, nobody's interested in our arguments, and we are in a time that's called post-Christian. When you say you're a Christian, people look at you a little bit like someone driving an ox wagon. What? 
are there still people like you around, really? And South Africa is not bad in that sense. You know all the places people emigrate to? When they go there, they will find that people look at them like they are living dinosaurs because they still believe the Christian faith. Because society in many places have been, become post-Christian. And then the poverty of affluence. This is a new idea for me, but I think it's such an important idea. In Amos, we read that the Israelites had become rich. And then God says to them, you are like cows lying on these ivory benches. You should put something through your nose because you have forgotten me. Affluence is such a good thing for us. We love it. We love to own things, to be happy, to have a nice house. And I'm not against any of these things. But there is a poverty embedded in that, in that we then find it easy to not need God, or at least think we don't. To forget about Him. To not spend time with Him. Because the day goes as it goes, whether I pray or not, whether I read Bible or not, it feels exactly the same. But the question is whether it's spiritually something that we really need that we are now neglecting. And then televisions, computers, tablets, cell phones, and other devices. We are distracting ourselves to death. And here I want to make a point, and I want to let two modern prophets speak. Now, if your seatbelts aren't fastened yet, you know, I didn't do that announcement. We are now going to fly at 50,000 feet. Please fasten your seatbelts. Okay, these two guys are going to say stuff. We're going to need your seatbelts fastened, right? But I'm going to let two modern prophets speak for themselves about this issue of of being distracted. Here goes the first one. G.K. Chesterton. He said in 1930, when he was speaking in Canada, the coming peril, the coming danger, he was seeing a danger coming, and he said, the coming peril is the intellectual, educational, psychological, and artistic overproduction, which equally with economic overproduction, in other words, being rich, and then having all of these things that distract us, threatens the well-being of contemporary civilization. People are inundated, blinded, deafened, and mentally paralyzed by a flood of vulgar and tasteless externals, leaving them no time for leisure, thought, or creation from within themselves. Now, I think if Chesterton could understand the lives we live today, (laughs) I don't know what he would say. But it has come to fruition, what Chesterton saw coming in the 1930s. Let's go to a second one. The the second one is even tougher. I found it in my preparation for this, and it's a book that I now am going to have to find. I said to Marianne today, I'm going to have to find it, and I'm going to have to read the whole thing. Here is the second book. It comes from Neil Postman. This is a long quote. I apologize, but I can't make it shorter. So what Postman does, he takes Huxley... And A Brave New World that was written by Huxley. And then he takes 1984 and he compares the two as dystopian novels. He says both of these sketch a a future that isn't very nice. But the two sketch very different futures. And then he says the following. What Huxley teaches is that in the age of advanced technology, spiritual devastation is more likely to come from an enemy with a smiling face than from one with a countenance that exudes suspicion and hate. In other words, the enemy that's going to destroy us spiritually, according to Huxley, would be smiling and friendly. It wouldn't be like somebody who looks like they're coming to kill and destroy you. In the Huxleyan prophecy, Big Brother does not watch us by his choice. We watch him by ours. There is no need for wardens, in other words, guards, or gates, or ministries of truth. You find all of those in 1984. We don't need any of those, according to Huxley. When a population becomes distracted by trivia, when cultural life is redefined as a perpetual round of entertainments, when serious public conversation becomes a form of baby talk, when, in short... A people become an audience and their public business a vaudeville act, which means a farce. Then a nation finds itself at risk. A culture death is a clear possibility. I would argue tonight that we are there. We are in the brave new world. We are entertaining ourselves to death. Right? Spiritually speaking, culturally speaking. And then another quote from Postman, it's not necessary to conceal anything from a public insensible to contradiction. Aren't we there? We listen to people speak in public who make contradictory statements as if it mean, there's nothing wrong with that. 
intellectuals doing these public contradictions as if there's nothing wrong with that and narcoticized by technological diversion. Isn't that a beautiful phrase? Narcoticized by technological diversion. Okay, that's, those, that's what the prophet said. And, and that's why I say to you, we are, we are children of our time. You are. Um, C.S. Lewis points this out beautifully when he says, we must remember that our time is also a time. We mustn't be chronological snobs. He, he calls it chronological snobbery. We look back at previous times and say, yeah, but the people in the 1950s, ah, oh, they weren't very clever, eh? The people in the 1930s, they were even worse. The people in the 1920s, and then let's go to colonialism. Sure, they were bad. Then Lewis says, no, be careful. Don't be a chronological snob. Ask yourself, what dangers are embedded in my time? What are the things that are taken for granted as being good in my time? Because they will be the dangers for your time. And if we are not chronological snobs, we have to recognize tonight that we are children of our time. We are influenced by our culture. We are more distracted than we think and probably not as open to experiences from God as we would want to give on. We are not as well read as we should be, and we are spiritual, but we prefer not to have anything that's too specifically religious. And yet, I would argue that the deepest human need is to have a personal experience with God. I would argue the most universal human need is to have a personal experience with a personal God. We want that, but we live in a situation and in a society where that becomes almost impossible. So let's see what we can learn from the Bible about approaching God and experiencing Him. So now we're going to try and look. I've tried to sketch for us a little bit the situation we find ourselves in. And I hope, at least to, to some degree, you can see yourself in that. I can tell you Neil Postman has moved me. Not emotionally, but he has moved my mind. Because I am seeing things much more clearly than I did before. Okay, so let's have a look at what the Bible says. Firstly, the Bible teaches us that there are some things we can't have. Sorry. We live in a time where you can have whatever you like. But the Bible says no. When it comes to knowing and experiencing God, there are certain things we cannot have. And I'm just going to give you one example. In Exodus 33, Moses said to God, Show me your glory. I want to see you face to face. But God says to him, Nope, Moses, you can't see me face to face. You will die no one can see me face to face and live, is what God says to him. And he puts him into a cleft of the rock, and he says, I'll take my glory over you. And he goes over Moses, and he moves over him, across him. Uh, but he cannot see him face to face. One of the things we need to understand as we are looking for experiences with God is that certain things are not possible for us. And at least in part, God does this to protect Moses. Because Moses would have spontaneously combusted. I hope you see my pictures there. Both of those people are flat. In the Bible, when, when somebody's confronted with God, they usually end up flat on their face. Because they can't handle it. Right? So when we are approaching God and we want to know Him, we must know that we, what we probably won't find is a direct meeting with Him face to face. So let's move on from there. I think it's also important to say that we are often in a situation where spiritual experience for us and our expectation of those experiences are guided by what we see in others. It's a little bit like when we try and find a partner and we use romantic comedies to guide us as to what should happen. You know, you walk past him, he walks past you, you just know he's the one, right? That's the way it should be. And when we start looking for that in romance, we often find ourselves in deep trouble because it just doesn't work that way for most of us. But in the same way, I think we often look in church and we see somebody praising and worshipping and the tears are streaming down their face and you think, if I were a true Christian, I would look like that. If I were a true Christian, I would kneel when I pray. If I were a true Christian, I would have this or that experience. I would speak in this or that way, have this or that gift. And I think that's a very dangerous thing for us to do because... I think the Bible teaches us that God will meet you as you are and as who you are. When Marianne first read this sentence, she said, no, I think you must take out the second as. And I also thought, yes, maybe I should wait, what's going on? But when we read it more slowly, it's, exactly, exact, it's actually exactly what I want to say. The Bible teaches us that God will meet you 
as you are. In other words, he doesn't want you to fix yourself first. He wants you as you are right now. And he will meet you as who you are. What do I mean? In Matthew 22, Jesus summarizes the law of God. And he says, Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. Crucial. And we often see, oh, it's all the parts, right? It's um, heart and soul and mind, and then we expound on that, and that's correct. I can tell you now, if you want to meet God, he wants all of you. There is no doubt about that. He doesn't just want one part. He wants everything. But I want us to, for a moment, stand still and see the second thing that is being said here, not just the first one. The first one is crucial and is correct. But do you see the word your being repeated three times there? This tells me that God is not interested in what someone else's heart looks like when he wants to have my heart. Or what someone else's emotions look like when he wants me to be emotionally involved. Or what someone else's mind looks like when he wants my mind. He wants mine. I'm probably one of the only people I know who has had goose flesh from a thought. Most people have experiences and then they have goose flesh or tears. I still remember when I was 17, I come from a Christian home, I've been a Christian my whole life, and then I started to wonder about Christianity. And when I was 17, <clears throat> through a pastor, God spoke to me. I have no doubt about that. I sat in a crowd of 100, well, 500 people, and I knew this sermon was me. I don't know how he did it, but he did it. And after that, I really started reading my Bible for the first time properly with real attention as, a, as a, somebody growing to be a, an adult. And I still remember when I realized what Jesus was teaching about himself in the Gospels. It struck me right here that if Jesus were truly human and truly God incarnate, and that he really lived and died and rose again, if those things are true, then everything I thought about the world is actually wrong in a, in a small way. The world is a different place than I thought. And when I realized that, I had goose flesh going all the way up. Do you know why? Because if you look at my Myers-Briggs profile, I'm an INTJ. So when I met Marianne and we, we became good, fr good friends and then we started dating and then things moved on from there, I visited friends. And this is a true story. And, and the husband and wife, and we sat and had dinner together and they said to me, yeah, so Andre, do you, do you like Marianne? I said, yes, I'm very excited about her. And they burst out laughing. Because she said, is that how you look when you're excited? Wow, I couldn't notice, right? It just looks the same to me. When I meet God, when you meet God, you can expect him to meet you as he made you. He doesn't want you to be someone else. He wants you to come with everything you have. And he will meet you there. So now we're going to look. Hope you're still all awake and surviving. Let me just look at the time. Yeah, I, I don't have much time, but I'm, I, I think I can finish. <clears throat> so I now want to look at two biblical texts because I, I, want, to, I want to unlock two parts of experiencing God, of, of having uh, an interaction with him that I think come from the Bible. So here comes the two lessons that I learned in my preparation for this sermon. The first one is that we will often find God in unexpected places. So we're going to read a text from the Old Testament, 1 Kings 19. This is about Elijah. <clears throat> now, the story is about Israel getting lost, as they generally did. And they had a very bad king and a very bad queen, and very few people still believed in God. And Elijah ran away. And he then, because the king wanted to kill him, and the queen as well. And he got to a mountain, and he went up the mountain, and he went into a cave. And, and this is where we now meet Elijah. He is upset at this point. He is not a happy camper. And the text goes as follows from verse 9. And there he went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? Remember this God I told you about who likes to ask questions, right? Now, here I want you to notice something. Who's talking to him there? I'm going to say it again. Then he went to, into a cave and spent the night, and the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? The very first thing that happens to him in this cave is God is speaking to him. He doesn't realize this, right? He is upset. Now he wants to vent first. So let's give Elijah a chance to vent. 
he says. He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. Very unhappy camper. Now he wants to meet God, but he doesn't really realize that the first person who spoke to him already was God. And then the Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Now Elijah has, gets told, go out of the cave, stand there in front, I'm going to come past you. You've called me, and you've moaned, now here I come. Right? Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. Now let's just stop there for a moment and say all three of those things could have been where God could have been. And he could use those any day of the week. But, but Elijah was standing there. God came past him. All of these massive shaking events happened and God wasn't there. And then... <clears throat> And after the fire came a gentle whisper. Now, look at Elijah's reaction now. What did we say about seeing God? Elijah knew about Moses. He knew he couldn't look God in the face. Suddenly, there's a gentle whisper speaking to him. Look what he does. And when Elijah heard, this, he heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood on the mouth, in the mouth of the cave. Immediately, he hides his eyes. He doesn't want to look. He doesn't want to make the mistake of looking. Then a voice said to him, remember what the first question was that God asked him. He said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? I don't know if there was humor in God's voice. I don't know. I don't know how he asked it. You know, Elijah, what are you doing? I don't know. But, but maybe there was humor. <laughs> Elijah, what are you doing here? I don't know. But here again, God says exactly the same thing to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? Now remember, God is not asking for information. Elijah's upset. He expected God to show up, and he expected him in the power, but it didn't come. All he gets is this soft voice saying to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? It's crucial that we realize that God will show up as he likes. Let's take a modern example of God showing up in an unexpected place. You all know Nightbird, right? I want you to point out the parallels between Elijah's experience and Nightbird here. She, she went to America's Got Talent. She got the golden buzzer. She had cancer. She passed away before the show ended. Those are the facts. If you haven't watched this song, it's worth watching, just for the passion that, that it comes across. as a beautiful song. She writes the following. The bathroom floor became my place to hide where I could scream and be ugly, where I could sob and spit and eventually doze off. I've had cancer three times now, and I have barely passed 30. There are times when I wonder what I must have done to deserve such a story. I fear sometimes that when I die and meet with God, that he will say I disappointed him or offended him or failed him. Maybe he'll say I just never learned the lesson or that I wasn't grateful enough. But one thing I know for sure is this. He can never say he did not know me. Doesn't this sound a little bit like Elijah? Things are going wrong. I'm unhappy. And then... I look hard for the answers to the prayers that I didn't pray. I see mercy in the dusty sunlight that outlines the trees in my mother's crooked hands, in the blankets my friends left for me, in the harmony of the wind chimes. It's not the mercy that I asked for, but it's mercy nonetheless, and I learn a new prayer. Thank you. It's a prayer I don't mean yet, but, I, uh, uh, but, but will repeat until I do. I've heard it said that some people can't see God because they won't look low enough, and it's true. If you can't see him, look lower. God is on the bathroom floor. And then at a later point, this is disjointed, so it's a, it's a quote from a different place. She says, maybe we missed it. Now she's going back to Genesis, to creation. Maybe we missed it. What God showed us when he first introduced himself, in other words, at the point of creation where he made humans, that he will crawl into the dirt to be near us and he will fill our lungs with air when we don't know how to breathe. She found God in the most unexpected place, right? Are you open to find him in the most unexpected place? The last bit of real input, and then just a few quotes, and, and then we'll end. 
I, I, the second example I want to use is of us having to wrestle with God. We want to sit in church and have experiences of Him, but the Bible shows us an example of somebody encountering God, and this happens in Genesis 32, verse 22 to 31. I'm going to sh- share with you the New International Version. This is Jacob. You all know Jacob. Jacob and Esau, right? He stole, and then he ran away to his uncle Laban, and he married the two daughters, the one that he didn't want to first, and then the one he did want to second, and then he had many kids and got, many, got very rich, and then he decided to go back to where he came from. Now he's traveling, and he's going to see Esau. The last time he saw Esau, he had stolen from him. He had stolen his blessings, and he had run away. He's going back. Last time he saw Esau, Esau said, I was going to kill you. And now Jacob has done all the preparations. Tomorrow he will meet his brother. He knows that. Tomorrow is the day of reckoning. He has already organized his family so that the kids he loves most are the furthest at the back with the wife he loves most and then the rest. And the gifts are going ahead. And now it's the night before. And the following happens. That night, Jacob Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two female servants and his 11 sons and crossed the ford of, of Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. And then the man said, Let me go, for it's daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And then the man asked him, What is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? And then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, it's because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Here we find Jacob. Meeting someone at night, wrestling with that someone, and realizing later on, some people will say it was an angel, but Jacob clearly thought it was God. Jacob clearly thought he actually met God himself. And let's accept that for a moment. Let's accept for a moment that Jacob is right in who he met, that it was God. I want you to notice two things. Firstly, Jacob was alone, and secondly, Elijah was alone when he met God. One of the things I think we should see from this is that it's probably a good thing that we spend some time alone with God, right, if we want to meet him. It's probably good to have collective worship, but yes, it's also good to spend time alone with him. Now, let's see a few things here. The first one is Jacob wrestled with him until daybreak. Now, if this were truly God, even if it were an angel, are you telling me Jacob was stronger than an angel? Are you telling me Jacob had that angel there and he had him in this grip and he had him around here and this poor angel was sweating? Or let's take it one step further. Let's say it was God. Let's say it was Jesus himself, the third person of the Trinity, wrestling with Jacob. We don't know, but that's possible. Do you really want me to believe that that angel or God himself could not have destroyed Jacob in a second? He allows Jacob to wrestle with him for the whole night. He even put his hip out to hurt him. But Jacob doesn't let go. This Jacob, who's the usurper, the Jacob who is the cheat, this time will not let go. He will give everything to fight to meet this person. He will give everything to be blessed. Look at these questions that you see. The man said to him, let me go for it's daybreak. What does that remind you of? You can't see him face to face, right? The sun is rising. You can't look at me. Why is that important? If this were God himself, we've now seen in two instances, hiding, putting in the cleft of the rock. You can't look at God face to face. Now let's look at these questions. Then the man said, let me go for it's daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he's had this whole night of fighting, and he says, I will still not let you go. I want you to show yourself to me. I want you to bless me. Then the man asked him, what's your name? Do you really think the man didn't know his name? Usurper, Jacob, you cheat. He asks him to say it out loud. Who are you, Jacob? And then Jacob says, Jacob, he answered. 
That name has come back to haunt him. He's meeting his brother tomorrow, and God shows him, you are Jacob. That's who you are. And then instead of leaving him as Jacob, the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob. I'm changing your name. Who is the one who can change our names? Only God. Because it speaks to who we are, especially in this text. But Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and you have overcome. And Jacob said, please tell me your name. Now we expect an answer, right? What happens when we ask God for his name? What happens when Moses asks him for his name? Okay? Jacob says, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? And then he blessed him there. But Jacob knew exactly who he met. Are we willing to struggle even for 10 minutes with God? To learn from him to be blessed by him are we willing to allow him to hurt us because in this instance Jacob had to wrestle with God to have real experiences of him let's go back to Nightbird, and then then we coming very close to closing I'm God's downstairs neighbor banging on the ceiling with a broomstick not quite Jacob wrestling with God but she's fighting with him his door, uh, uh, I show up at his door every day, sometimes with songs, sometimes with curses, sometimes apologies, gifts, questions, demands. I have called him a cheat and a liar, and I meant it. I've told him I wanted to die, and I meant it. Tears have become the only prayer I know. Prayers roll over my nostrils and drip down my forearms. They fall to the ground as I reach for him. Call me bitter if you want to. That's fair. But count me also. Amongst the friends of God, for I have seen him in rare form. I have felt his exile laid in his shadow, squinted to read the messages he wrote for me in the grout. I am sad too. If an explanation would help, he would write me one. I know it, but maybe an explanation would only start an argument between us, and I don't want to argue with God. I remind myself that I'm praying to the God who let the Israelites stay lost for decades. They begged to arrive in the promised land, but instead he let them wander, answering prayers they did not pray. For 40 years their shoes didn't wear out. Fire lit their path each night. Every morning he sent them mercy bread from heaven. Are we willing to wrestle with God? Because when we find God as a person, as C.S. Lewis puts it, there comes a moment when the children who've been playing at burglars hush suddenly. Was that a real footstep in the hall? There comes a moment when people who have been dabbling in religion, man's search for God, suddenly draw back, supposing we really found him. <gasps> we never meant it to come to that. We're still supposing he really found us. And then Lewis says in A Grief Observed, you never know how much you really believe anything until its truth or falsehood becomes a matter of life and death to you. It is easy to say you believe a rope to be strong and sound as long as you're merely using it to cord a box. But suppose that you had to hang by that rope over a precipice. Wouldn't you then first discover how much you really trusted it? Only a real risk tests the reality of belief. Are we willing to take those risks with God to experience him? And then a last quote from Lewis. And then I'm, I've got two slides and I'm done. As Lewis says... An impersonal God, well and good. A subjective God of beauty, truth, and goodness inside our own heads, better still. A formless life force surging through us, a vast power which we can tap best of all. But God himself, alive, pulling at the other end of the cord, perhaps approaching at infinite speed. The hunter, king, husband, that is quite another matter. I think, as people living in the 21st century in the city, those of us saying we want to experience God will have to use a mirror. We're going to have to ask ourselves some really serious and difficult and important questions. Who are we really looking for? Are we honest about where we are right now? Are we really serious about searching for him? And what is it that we're looking for? Are we willing to find him in unexpected places? Are we open to experiences we did not expect? Are we placing ourselves in situations where he can really talk to us? Because if 
he is truly God, then he might just surprise us. And lastly, on this slide, and then I've got one slide to go, are you spending your resources, especially your time, in accordance with what you say above? You say you want to experience him. Can we see that in your life, that you really want to know him and experience him? Can, can you see it in mine? This is not just a question for you, by the way. Last slide. <clears throat> C.S. Lewis, I haven't read this. Um, I've tried twice, but I just can't get through it. He took one of the classic myths and he rewrote it. Um, it was actually his own favorite writing ever. If you asked him what was his favorite, this was it. It's called Until We Have Faces. So it's a myth, and it's in this classic Greek style. Maybe I'm just not clever enough to read it. But one of the characters in this, in this myth um, doesn't meet God. She doesn't know him. And then at the end of the story, she stands before God. Now here I want us to take a moment and imagine yourself standing before God. Right? And what she then does is she gives all of these reasons why she did not believe in him. She gives all of the explanations about his hiddenness and about what she expected and what she got and about her disappointment. She gives all of these explanations. And when she's done, what God says is this. He says, now, he didn't say this, but now she's in his presence, right? And he says, are you answered yet? That's all. Are you answered yet? It might mean nothing to you, but it shakes me to my feet. All of these reasons we give, all of these excuses we use, are we answered yet once we are in the presence of the living God? Remember, it's not just God who is hidden, we are too. And although we can't know everything, we can expect to meet him to meet us where we are and as who we are. And I think we should start looking for him often in unexpected places. And we should be willing to wrestle with him and with knowing him and with experiencing him. If the Bible is true, and I believe it to be, then he is coming after us as the good shepherd goes after the lost sheep. And at the same time, he's waiting for us on the stoop, saying, come to me, I want to embrace you. And I honestly think that if we really seek for God, we will find him as the Bible promises. I'm going to stop there and pray, and then maybe there's time for a question. I don't know. Lord Jesus, thank you that we have your word, that we have nature, and most of all, that we have your son. Thank you that you've come to show us who you are, that you've come to show us how much you love us, that you've come to invite us in relation, to be in relationship with you. And Lord, Help us open our eyes to look in the unexpected places. Open our eyes so that we may see you as you can be seen by us. Help us to have the courage to wrestle with you, not to just give up after an easy try. And those of us who might be experiencing the dark night of the soul, help us to continue living in ways that are true to you. We need your help for this, Lord, and thank you that you give us your spirit. And thank you that you give us your son who came to live the life we should have lived and die the death we should have died. We praise you and we pray this in his name. Amen.